You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. It's really good to be here. Thank you so much, Craig. Um, as Craig indicated, there's not much going on in our life right now. It's a pretty low-key moment, international move. We just found out the, our belongings on the boat from England have been delayed by six weeks. Um, so I just tell you that because I needed to say something before I started. Um, but it's also to sort of impress you because I mean, I'm wearing a tie. And to those of you who do know me, I'm wearing shoes, which is always a bit of a miracle. I'm a sort of more of a flip-flop kind of person. But I actually found the shoes to wear this morning, even though the boat has not arrived. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. The thing I'm most nervous about is speaking using a microphone. I just had to preach a sermon at this old historic church in Cambridge. And it wasn't until I walked up that they handed me a microphone. And I thought, that'll be fine, I can do this. But then I started talking and I realized I do something that the English do not do, which is that I talk like this. <laughs> and they were so sure that a person wouldn't do this that not only did it not work for the sound, they had people standing very close to me as I was speaking. And three times I struck. I struck a very nice woman three times and I felt, I felt horrible. So stay where you are. I'll try to speak into the microphone, but I won't hit anyone back here. But what's going on is we've got three sessions. Uh, this week and next week, I'll be here in the Dean's Hour, and then a week off because I have to go on a faculty retreat at Beeson, then I'll be back. And we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 2. So if you want to kind of follow along or do any reading for this, not the whole chapter, that would be a lot. We're going to look at a little bit of one verse and then two verses near the end of the chapter, Galatians 2.16 and Galatians 19 and 20. So that's what we'll be looking at. And the idea in the next two weeks is really to pay attention to what the passage says and why it's good news for real human beings living real lives. That's the hope of the next two weeks. But the hope of this week is to think more honestly with the passage about what it feels like to be a human being living a real life. And I think the passage helps with that. So this is the kind of honest week, the kind of face reality week. I will try to pivot a little bit and give you a kind of hint of the good news that's coming. But do come back, because the good news in this passage is really going to be the headline news of the next couple of weeks. But what I'd like to do before I sort of jump into the content is I'd like to say a prayer and just ask God to do the two things I'm hoping will happen during these passages and during these weeks. So please pray with me. Father in heaven, I ask two things through this time, through the power of your word, and through our three weeks together. I ask first that you would show us that we need Jesus, and I ask that you would give us Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. All right. So I think the best way to capture what I'm hoping will happen in our time together over the next three weeks is to tell you about a little treatise that the Protestant reformer Martin Luther wrote in 1518. I think this is actually the very first document that was ever written that could be called a Reformation document. He wrote it in 1518, and the first half of it sounds pretty academic. It's called a disputation or an inquiry into truth. It's the kind of thing you expect a university professor to be up to. That was the first half, an inquiry into truth. The second half, however, shows why 
it's worth asking about truth. He says, for the consolation of troubled consciences. And it's those two things that I hope will come together in our time. I do hope we encounter the truth of God's word to us in Galatians. But I hope as we do it, it will be in a way that it actually connects with and will be for us in our troubles. And I feel that in particular because I'm always thinking about a woman in a novel by William Inge. William Inge, you may know, was a very successful playwright in the middle of the 20th century. But he wrote a couple of novels. And in one novel called My Son is a Splendid Driver, there's a character who's just called Mother. And in the first half of the novel, she has what starts out as a wonderful family holiday, and the family's finally gotten a new car, and her son drives her around, and she thinks he's pretty splendid at it, hence the title. But then, through a very routine shaving accident, he gets an infection, and he actually dies. And the first half of the novel ends at a very sad moment. It picks up ten years later. Mother's not quite gotten over that, and now it's just been compounded because her traveling salesman husband, in a very uncharacteristic but real episode of excess drinking and infidelity, has communicated to her a socially shameful condition or disease. And she can't really even bear to go into the neighborhood. So she just sits on her front porch in the morning until the neighbors start coming out, and then she goes in. But every day, the first person she sees is Mrs. Holt heading for Mass at the Catholic Church. And she says to her other son who's visiting one day, she doesn't miss a day. I wish I had a God to pray to now. And then she says, but church isn't a place you can go with your troubles. Church is just a place you go when you have a new hat and things are going well. And William Inge, the author, comments, there was a little bitterness in what she said, but there was also truth. Church was the last place mother could have gone with her honest shame and suffering. Now, I don't think that's true of all churches. I've been coming to this church for over 10 years and it hasn't been my experience here, but we need to hear that. Church is not a place you can go with your troubles. It's just a place you go when things are going well and you have a new hat to wear. But if back in the 16th century, Martin Luther thought the truth of Scripture and of the good news of the gospel was for troubled consciences, then how 450 years later do we get to a point where the assumption is when I have troubles, the one place I can't go is church? Maybe you're not a real reader of sort of mid-20th century obscure novels. Maybe you're more of a sort of listen-to-Madonna music kind of person, right? That's, that's the vibe I'm getting from the audience. Um, <laughs> but I say that because Madonna captured this too, right? There's a song in which a father is warning his daughter, I don't think this guy's going to be good for you. As often happens with that kind of advice, it doesn't actually prevent the relationship. But that doesn't mean the father was necessarily wrong because the daughter suddenly has trouble. She gets pregnant. She comes to dad with her trouble. 
And in her trouble, in her suffering, in her shame, there's just one thing she doesn't want him to do. Papa, don't preach, as the name of the song is. But what if the good news that we have to proclaim about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is strong enough for real people in real suffering, in real shame, in real sin, that the reaction was, I've got a problem. Somebody, please, preach. I need to hear the good news. I've got troubles. I want to run to church. I have a troubled conscience. What's the truth of Scripture? That's the kind of situation that I think Galatians 2 takes us deep into. The church in Galatia has troubles. Paul's written to them and says, I am astonished at how quickly you are abandoning the one who called you in grace and are turning to another gospel, which isn't even a gospel. So he's writing at a crisis moment in Galatia. And when you get to chapter 2, Paul says what I think are some fairly well-known words, but they're the words I want us to think about for three weeks. He says first in Galatians 2.16, at least the first sentence of the verse, he says, we know that a person is not righteous by works of the law, but through faith in what God has done in Jesus Christ. That's the first part. And then at the end of the paragraph, Galatians 2, 19 and 20, Paul says, through the law, I died to the law in order that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. These are beautiful, well-known words. But I wonder how many of us have really stopped and asked, what does it actually mean to say something like, I no longer live, or I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It often reminds me of what I thought was a wonderful Christmas gift that I gave to my mother. Um, I think I was eight. I had worked hard with my brother to save up some of our allowance, and we bought her this. I mean, she bought things on QVC, so I thought, buy her something from QVC. That'll go great. And she opened it, and she said, I love it. And I thought, I expected you to. It's from QVC. And then her next sentence surprised me. She said, what is it? <laughs> and of course, it was a juicer, which everyone needs, but she asked, Do you, did you save the receipt? and returned, but we don't need to go into that particular therapy session right now. I tell you that because it's the kind of reaction I had with this passage. I sort of knew it. I thought I loved it. And then I decided I'm going to try to study it a bit more because that's what I get paid to do is read Paul's letters and sort of say things about them. And I'll try to understand what this says. And I find myself going, I think I love this. I know I'm supposed to love this, but what is this? What does it mean to say I have been crucified with Christ? I no longer live. Christ lives in me. It just became a mystery to me. So I started paying attention to what other people in the history of the church has said about this. And it turns out they're confused too. St. Augustine, okay, a pretty serious theologian from the late 4th, early 5th century in North Africa, came to this and he said, this is a weird passage. This is the way somebody would talk if they were already dead. 
And then he said, the trick is dead people typically don't talk. And yet Paul seems to be saying, this is what you say if you're dead. And he gave it a genre. He said, this is a particular kind of talking. And he called it the speech of the dead. And I thought, well, that's very provocative and interesting. But now I'm even more confused. Galatians 2.20 is the speech of the dead. I fully understand. And I expect that we're really connecting now. I go a little further. I get to Martin Luther. And he says, this is strange and unheard of. I thought, okay, I agree. But can you help me out a little bit? I move on. I get to Albert Schweitzer in the 20th century. And he, sort of, you know, kind of back to the future moment, gets ahead of time and quotes the Princess Bride. And he says, what Paul says here is inconceivable, right? And I'm thinking, at least other people are recognizing the strangeness of this with me. Perhaps the most sort of honest moment comes in the 1970s when a well-known New Testament scholar named E.P. Sanders is writing a book on Paul. And he says this, Paul seems to have genuinely believed that we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection life. I have to confess, I do not know what that means, and I have nothing to propose. This is right at the end of a very serious scholarly book. And I thought, wow, you know, can you do that? Can I write books where I get to the end and say, I do not know what this means, and still get it published? I kind of had hope for my scholarly career in that moment. So I've been living with this passage for a while and living with these people who have read it for a while. That's kind of what was behind the, the title, Galatians 2, in and after, right? There's the afters. I've been reading these people who have been reading Galatians 2. And here's what I've come to think. And this is gonna be sort of where we pivot and look more deeply at it. But what I've come to think is the Bible as a whole, God's word as a whole, the gospel and all its power and goodness, and the gospel as it's proclaimed in this strange but wonderful passage really does two needed and powerful things. It lets us look reality in the face, honestly. It lets us see and feel what life is actually like and what our need actually is. It's honest. But then, and as the horizon, it also proclaims and announces a hope that is deeper and stronger even than the hardest, honest realities that we have to face. It's actually a good news strong enough for real human living and real human dying. And that's what I want to talk about with you. And this has really come home to me in the last seven years where I've been teaching at the University of Cambridge. I, I have PhD students and I have Masters of Theology students, but I teach a lot of undergraduates as well, 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds who are studying theology for a whole lot of reasons that they're not very clear about. But most of them are relatively indifferent to the truth that religion claims. They're interested in its cultural influence. They're interested in its significance in ancient cultures. They want to know the languages. They want to know how it's still affecting politics. But why would a person in the 21st century actually be a practitioner? That's a bit of an unasked question when they walk in to study the New Testament in a university setting. 
But they've told me something interesting over the years. I've had student after student say, there's this assumption that religion is the kind of fantasy, wish fulfillment, make your dreams come true, pie in the sky, don't face reality sort of thing. But they said, you know what? We actually feel like life without religion is a wish fulfillment, don't face reality, pie in the sky kind of thing. Just sort of pretend that the world's problems are solvable in human terms. Just pretend we can deal with the problem of death or war or pandemic or ecological crisis. And pretend that we're not really suffering ourselves. Because we're told whatever you're feeling, whatever you're going through, whoever you think you are, that's good, that's right. You are affirmed as you are. And it's a confusing state to be. Everything is okay, and the world is falling apart, and you need to solve the problems. And they're thinking, I cannot make these wires connect. Somebody's not telling me the truth. And then they hear these strange words like sin. And I think, I'm pretty sure I don't like that. But I wonder if that has some explanatory power for why the world feels like it does. And then they hear words like grace, and they think, could that actually mean that if you mess up and the internet remembers it, you could still have a future on the other side? And they're sort of genuinely encountering and exploring these as fresh and radical ideas. And I've been thinking hard about this, and I'm convinced that one of the most compelling things about the witness of Scripture and the gospel that it proclaims is that it doesn't hide the hurt. It doesn't fail to face the facts of living. But it's willing to be honest and to diagnose reality in life as they're actually lived. But of course, the power in the promise is that the moment of honesty is not the final word, but that there's a hope stronger than the pain. And there's a forgiving and forever love that overcomes the doubt and the darkness and the suffering. And I think Galatians 2 helps us see both of those. So what's going on in Galatians 2? Well, we heard all these people, including me, saying how weird this was. It's the speech of the dead. It's inconceivable. It's strange and unheard of. Paul seems to mean what he said, but I have no idea what that means. There's a whistle-stop tour of the history of interpreting Galatians 2. I think, basically, it's strange because there's three things that we think we know what they mean. But if what Paul says in Galatians 2 is right, we probably need to rethink what they mean. Right? I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To be able to say that confession, I think it means three things that we think we know what they mean we're going to have to return to and rethink in light of Paul's confession. Those things are death, life, and I, or the self. I think we assume we know what all of those are. And I think if Paul's right, we probably don't know what any of those are unless we think about them in relationship to what God has done in Jesus. 
And unless Jesus' death, life, and resurrection are the answer to the question, what does it mean to be dead? What does it mean to be alive? And who am I? And basically, in these three weeks, we're going to look at those three things. What does it mean to be dead? Welcome to today. (laughs) What does it mean to be alive? Please come back next week. And then, who are you? Who am I? What is God's answer to that question? That'll be our final week together. And the basic thing here is that we know our assumptions are on the wrong track. Because Paul takes what should be the obvious order of these things, you live and then you die, and he reverses them. He says you die and then you live. I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, and the life I now live, I live by faith. The life that he lives in Christ comes after death. Through the law, I died to the law. Death comes first, so that I might live to God. Life comes second. So the order is reversed in relationship to what God has done in Christ. And what I want to do, we only have, actually, I don't know. I think we stop at 10.50. I hope that's true. I'm going to sort of go, yep, I got a thumbs up from the back. But we'll stay till sort of midnight, and we'll talk about these things. But we'll go to about 10.50, and I just want to talk about what it means that death comes first. Okay? So some of you will know the American playwright and novelist Thornton Wilder. And Thornton Wilder said, we're always saying art tells the truth. That was honest. That, that painting was so true. And he just kind of says, what in the world does that mean? What are we talking about when, he said, when we say that? And he said, if it means anything, it means this. When we encounter a work of art, it could be a song, it could be a poem, it could be a painting, it could be a sculpture, it could be a play, it could be a, a novel, any kind of work of art. And we find ourselves saying, oh my goodness, that's the way it really is. That's the way it really feels. That's reality. And I've always known that, but I didn't know that I knew that until I heard that or saw that or experienced that. See, what happens is that the reality that we feel, something forces us to face it to see it. And this is the first revelation that Paul's always talking about. When you read Paul's letters, you'll find out he's always talking about two revelations, what he calls two apocalypses. And the first one is a revelation of reality as we're currently living it. East of Eden, in our own resources, and outside of Christ. He says in Romans 1, for example, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of human beings. There's a revelation of the extent of our need and the reality that we so often feel but hide from, we're forced to face. And I think this is part of what happens in this passage. When you hear that death actually comes before life is you have one of these that actually is what it's really like 
And I've felt that, but I haven't fully faced that. So Thornton Wilder would go on to say things like, you know, if you lift every roof, you'll find seven questioning and suffering hearts. Or you can read Don Quixote by Cervantes, and he says, what is called need, it's found everywhere. It's evenly distributed. Right? Everyone's not suffering the same way, but people are suffering. This is the one unifying fact of human existence. The way Paul says it in Romans is, there is no distinction for all sinned and lack the glory of God. There's a fundamental solidarity at the level of need. But what do we do with that? So here's Thornton Wilder's big question that he said many of his novels were about. I'm always sort of hesitant to ask this question because it's such a big question that if you don't have anything to say afterwards, it's sort of a real downer at the end of it. But he said this is the question he was always wrestling with. He said, I'm a novelist. It's not my job to answer the questions, just to ask them. And he said, I'll leave the answers to the theologians. And I thought, oh no, it's a terrible thing to say. Um, so pretend I'm a novelist, not a theologian. But he said, this is the question I'm really asking. When a human being is made to bear more than a human being can bear, what then? When a person has to carry more than they can carry, what then? I think that's a powerful question, but it's hit me at a very immediate level because it's the exact kind of language that the students I've been teaching over the last seven years have been using. They've been talking constantly about feeling like they're carrying two weights, both of which are too heavy to bear. They say, on the one hand, we feel like we're being asked to carry the weight of the whole world. It's supposed to be our generation, and maybe kids who get the kind of education we're getting at Cambridge, who are supposed to go into engineering and politics and biotech and et cetera, we're being asked to carry the weight of the whole world, to figure out how to stop things like the war in Ukraine or the famine in East Africa or global pandemics because of unstoppable viruses or the ecological crisis that seems to get closer every day, et cetera, et cetera. We're asked to carry the weight of the whole world. We're not just asked to care about everything, which is hard enough, when new news and new suffering is coming across our feeds every five minutes. We don't even have the bandwidth to care about it all. We're actually being asked to solve it all, and we cannot carry the weight of the whole world. But it's not the only weight we're having to carry. We're also having to carry the weight of our own worth, of our own significance, of our own value. There was a book written a few years ago by the journalist Will Self, uh, Will Storr, and all my, all my books are on a boat. So this is, just, this is just what I got, so I'm just giving you what I got. All of this could be incorrect, but I think almost everything I'm saying is true. Will Storr wrote a book about sort of the, the development of the human self. And he opens with a very difficult chapter called The Dying Self, which looks at how rates of self-harm and suicide have really gone up, and he's trying to understand it. And he looks at a study that was done a number of years ago at the University of Pennsylvania. And this hits very close to home, because right as I was leaving Cambridge, we had the exact same thing happen at the University of Cambridge. But a few years ago, at the University of Pennsylvania, there was what they called a cluster of suicides among the student population. 
and this just happened a couple of months ago at my own university. And they did what universities do, they put resources into it, they created a task force, they genuinely wanted to understand what's happening and why and how can we help. They didn't think it would be easy, but they wanted to get some information. And the report came back and it said that what the students are experiencing, perceiving, and suffering under is an expectation that they have to be, quote, perfect in every academic, athletic, social, artistic, and etc. aspect of life. And as Will Self comments on this and goes through the interviews, he gets to the end of it and he says, what's literally happening, it's not a metaphor, what's literally happening is that students and people in general are suffering and dying under the weight of the fantasy self they are failing to become. They are suffering and dying under the weight of the fantasy self they are failing to become. And the statistics back this up. Some of you might know the research of the NYU professor Jonathan Haidt, who's been sort of tracking especially teen mental health, but looking at it more broadly. And the numbers are pretty alarming, especially for teenagers, especially for teenage girls, if you want to know the sort of finest grain stuff. And it's not just that people are more willing in general to talk about mental health. There was a perceived idea that maybe that's why the statistics have gone up, because it's less taboo and people can talk about it more. Because people are talking about, and diagnoses of anxiety and depression have gone way up. And people say, well, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we broke the taboo. But the other thing that's really gone up is hospitalizations from self-harm, attempted, and successful suicide. Right? We don't know exactly why. People are trying to work it out. There's a lot of theories, some more promising than others. But what we do know is that people are suffering under the weight of the fantasy selves they are failing to become. This is what's actually happening in our world. That's what's actually happening in this city. It's what's actually happening in this church. And we'd be naive to think it's not what's happening in this room. Paul comes and says, the life that we actually have as human beings on the other side of Genesis 3, on the other side of sin coming into the world. And Paul talks about this in Romans 5. He says, sin came into the world and death reigned. And he's going to say that something changes with Jesus Christ. But he does say honestly that the life that we are born into, the good life that God created on the good earth God created, is a life where death is reigning, where sin is present where there's condemnation and curse and finitude and failure and fragility. And this life is hard. And if you think you have to be perfect in every academic, athletic, business, extracurricular, social, artistic part of life, then you too will find that this is not an expectation you can live up to. This is the life that is actually the reality of death. You see, we think death is what happens at the end of our biological life. But what the Bible teaches from Genesis 
to Revelation is death is actually the condition of life under sin and before union with Christ and the grace of Christ. This is why God can say to Adam and Eve, on the day you eat of the fruit, you will die. And everyone says, but they didn't die. And I think the Bible says, yes, they did. They absolutely did. And we've all been living the life that is death ever since. The life that feels like the University of Pennsylvania study. The life that feels like the rise in anxiety, depression, self-harm, and suicide. So what I want to try to do is just give you a quick little definition that I think comes from Paul's statement. Okay? This is going to be my definition of what it means to be dead theologically. To be dead, if it's right, that through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God, and I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I live in the flesh, in the Son of God, and by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If that's right, then what death is, is life before death with Christ. It's life with death in your future. It's life with death ahead of you. Now again, insofar as we're assuming that we already know what death is, those sentences don't make a lot of sense. If we're thinking simply what happens at the end of our biological existence, those sentences don't make sense. And here's where Paul can help us. Because he uses slightly different terms in Galatians 2.16, when he says a person is not righteous by works of law, but by faith in what God has done in Jesus Christ. And the reason that's helpful, because when Paul uses righteousness language, he's using judgment language. He's using what's the verdict on your life language. What does God see and say when he looks at you? What will God see and say at final judgment? Is your life significant? Does your life have value? What are you worth? And Paul says the answer to that question, and this is the good news, is not decided or determined on the basis of your pedigree or your performance. It will not be on the basis of I or you that God will render God's verdict on your life. But what it means to live the life that is death is to live with judgment ahead of you on the assumption that the basis for it is the life you're living. Okay, let me say that again, because I think this is the theological reality that plays out experientially as the hell that life can be. It's to live your life thinking that the final judgment, the final verdict on your life, its significance, its value, its dignity, its worth, its righteousness, it being enough, it counting for something, is in the future, and that the basis for that judgment or that verdict will be the life you've lived, what you have inherited or achieved. And when that's the case, then everything you have and everything you do just become part of the endless audition for love, for respect, for righteousness, for hope, for value. It doesn't really matter what it is. We can take anything we come across and turn it into what my friend David Zoll calls the justifying story of our life. 
or our guilt management. It could be our career, it could be our bank account, it could be our waistline, it could be how our children turn out, it could be the relationships we have, it could be our athletic success, it could be our hobby of making model trains. Any of these things can become not just things we do, but the basis of who we are. They can become the things we're trying to be perfect at so that we will be judged significant. And what that feels like to live with that kind of judgment in the future on the basis of our life, our pedigree and our performance, what that feels like is stress. It feels like fear. It often feels like things we feel we cannot share because they don't lead in a positive direction. So it looks like secrets. It looks like what Brene Brown calls an epidemic of shame, where people don't just think they've made mistakes, but they think they are a mistake. It looks like exhaustion. It looks like weariness. It looks like anxiety, depression, self-harm, and suicide on university campuses and so many other places. That's the reality. The Bible has some names for these things, too. It calls them pride, assuming that we are the main characters in our own story. It calls it unbelief, trusting ourselves in the things of this earth rather than God. They're all just forms of breaking the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, and you shall have no other gods before me. And yet we trust ourselves and other things to give our life value and significance when only God can. What it feels like is often fleeting pride when we think we're pulling it off, and much more often and much more sustained despair. Martin Luther said that's the human experience, a vacillation as we're trying to establish our own righteousness between momentary pride and long valleys of despair. But never peace that God is carrying us and that God is doing the work. Which, of course, is where we're going to turn. But I wanted us to feel this together as we're finishing right now. Because this is what people tell me life feels like, and this is what I know life feels like. It can feel like constantly comparing yourself to other people. It can feel like you're in a competition with other people. It can feel like needing to carefully curate who you are and what you present to the world so that you'll be significant. And it can feel, as I said, like an endless audition for love that you fear you'll never receive. But let me give you a hint of why that honest reality is not the final word that Paul has to speak. Because Paul describes that life of the I who is alive with judgment ahead of them, but he says that's actually not the basis for your righteousness. And it's not I, but Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And I know that maybe some of you, and certainly the students I've been teaching, are feeling a double weight. The weight of the world and the weight of your worth. But what Paul says is that the good news is not you, but Christ. 
And that sentence, that confession, not I but Christ, is Christ coming to you and speaking what Thomas Cranmer calls the comfortable words. It's coming to the weary, to those who are trying to carry the weight of their worth and of the world and saying, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And with that invitation, the weight of the world, the weight of our worth, the weight of our being wanted and loved and known is taken off of our shoulders and put on the shoulders of the one who said, I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners, who came to call me, and who came to call you. And we'll spend two more weeks looking at that good news about life with Christ and identity in Christ. Amen. (laughs) You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.